Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Greg Beats to discuss his book, A Curious Mix of People, The Underground Scene of 90s Austin. This is a special episode for Nate as he was a participant in the scene as a fanzine writer, club booker, and band member. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by an old friend of mine, Greg Beats, the co-author of a book called A Curious Mix of People, The Underground Scene of 90s Austin. Greg, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Sure. It's, it's a pleasure. And this is a scene that we both knew pretty well. Tell us what the book is about. Uh, well, basically, uh, the, the book is about um, the underground music scene of Austin during, during the 1990s. And um, it, it gets a little bit sticky uh, going from the 80s into the 90s and the 90s uh, into the aughts. But just for the sake of bookending it, uh, we kind of focused on um, on basically going 90 to 99. Um, and we were kind of fortunate to have kind of, you know, two sets of events, one in 1990 and one in 1999 that kind of allowed us to do this. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that, you know, one of the things that we uh, picked up on uh, while we were doing the interviews uh, that we did, because this is kind of like an oral history book, uh, Tim Kerr from, uh, the big boys who were, you know, very much a seminal, uh, eighties Austin band, uh, you know, talked about basically that you can't, you can't really say that it, you know, started at this point and stopped at that, stopped at that point. Uh, it really is a, a very fluid, uh, fluid scene. Um, but, but I think we wanted to kind of put the nineties under a microscope, uh, in Austin simply because, um, you know, we felt that the seventies had kind of been written about, uh, with the, uh, the, the rise of the Armadillo world headquarters. And then of course the fall of the Armadillo world, world headquarters, uh, to some extent, I think the eighties has been, uh, covered, uh, pretty well, um, the, the, with, uh, the, sort of the coalescence of punk rock in Austin around, uh, Raul's club, uh, you know, I think uh, Pat Blaschel, who's another author here in town, has done a really uh, good book, a photo essay called Texas is the Reason, which chronicles that scene really well. Um, so we just kind of felt that there, there was a bit of a drop off uh, with, with the 90s. 
Um, and it wasn't, even though there were a lot of people who made the jump from the eighties to the nineties, it wasn't quite the same thing. There was a, you know, a new generation of people, uh, coming up and, and starting bands and a, a new, uh, a new energy. And at the same time, um, it, it was sort of the end of, of the way of doing a lot of things, uh, uh, in terms of how, you know, how you subsist in a local band. Um, and, and we kind of get into that, those sort of, uh, social and cultural economic factors, uh, about, you know, how things, how things changed, uh, in the local music scene from the nineties into the uh, aughts, uh, how Austin itself, uh, changed, kind of went from being a, a big town to a small city, uh, during that period. And, um, and, and just sort of putting the whole thing in the microcosm of, uh, how music itself kind of changed uh, from from the 80s to the 90s. So there, there are a lot of different cross currents going on there, but we're kind of viewing the whole thing through uh, the, this, you know, what we call a curious mix of people, uh, the participants uh, of, of the uh, music scene in Austin during during the 90s, uh, the people who were in the bands, the people who were uh, DJs on the uh, local non-commercial radio stations, uh, the people who ran the record stores, uh, the club owners and and so on and so forth. So that's in in a rather large nutshell. I think that's what we're that's what we're doing here. And so this isn't Liverpool in the '60s or even Seattle in the '90s. I mean, nobody came out of this scene and conquered the world. There wasn't really like even the '80s Austin scene. There was an aesthetic that had a national impact, at least on an underground level, with bands like the Butthole Surfers and the Big Boys and even Poison Thirteen, you know, influencing um, underground rock across the country. But the Austin '90s scene, there's a few bands that coulda, shoulda, woulda, or were expected to, or hoped for. I mean, like, what's the significance of this, and why should people care about it? Is there some bigger story that that it connects to or plugs into that beyond just what some people did back in the day? You know, it's a it's a good question. I mean, it's it's definitely a question. Uh, probably the first thing, uh, our, our book editor asked us when we, uh, walked into UT press and, and presented this idea. Um, you know, I think, you know, you can, you can look, you can definitely look at the nineties that way. There were a lot of bands, uh, from Austin, uh, who, who got close, uh, during the nineties. Uh, some of the, you know, some of the more significant ones would have been, uh, 16 Deluxe and, uh, you know, Sincola, um, you know, I think Spoon was definitely a band who, uh, you know, emerged in the nineties, found themselves, uh, you know, on, on Matador records, uh, jump made the, the jump to, uh, Electra records and, um, lasted all of one album there because there was kind of a change in the regime uh, and they, they actually, uh, sort of took a tongue in cheek approach to it by, uh, putting out a single that, that, uh, kind of poked fun at their former, uh, A and R person. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so I think, you know, Spoon was the exception. I think a lot of bands, uh, that kind of went through that ringer, uh, you know, came out of it and, and I think, you know, may, may have, uh, you know, felt dispirited or what have you. And, and a lot of those bands, uh, broke up spoon was, you know, I, I think what happened with spoon is that even, you know, even though they didn't really reach their, 
uh, pinnacle uh, until the uh, until the next decade. Um, and, and certainly Spoon has since gone on to, you know, uh, have, uh, you know, a, a string of uh, pretty well selling by today's standard uh, and, and uh, you know, definitely critically acclaimed albums. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd still kind of consider them to be a product of, of that 90s scene. And I think if you talk to Britt Daniel, he'd probably agree uh, that, you know, the same thing could probably be said for uh, and, and you will notice by the trail of dead. Um, definitely a band that came out of Austin uh, by way of uh, Olympia and other points along the way uh, in the, in the later nineties, uh, you know, found themselves uh, on you know one of the last bands on the local label trans syndicate here in Austin uh, then made the jump over to merge and uh, ultimately uh, to Interscope. Uh, and the and I think in you know 2001, I think is when Source Tags and Codes came out, which uh, you know sold reasonably well, got got you know very critically acclaimed. Uh, and then another another example of a of a 90s band, uh, maybe we'd call them slow growers. I think that that ended up. Uh, you know, di- didn't make much of a slash during the '90s, but but did ultimately, uh, you know, make some pretty big accomplishments. Was uh, Cherubs? Uh, those guys uh, came together in the, the early '90s, played, uh, you know, started playing a few a few shows uh, around uh, places like the Cavity, which was a uh, very kind of squatty underground club in Austin during the. Uh, uh, early nineties, calling it a club might not even be proper. It really did. It was, it really was a squat <laughs> of all things, but, uh, you know, those guys got on, on trance syndicate, put out one really great album. Uh, well, it, more than one, more Two, than one album, actually, but I yeah. think one, yeah, one, one real, you know, that to, to me, the, their, their really great one was heroin man, uh, yeah. which, which was just a fantastic record. One of the best records I think that came out of Austin during the nineties, but by the time, it actually came out. Those guys had gone on tour and had had a, a rough time on tour, and they'd they'd split up. Um, but then, you know, twenty something years later, uh, they get back together and uh, and record to infinity, um, which sounds like they, you know, they they picked up right where they left off. I mean, it was like a, you know, to me, every bit as good uh, is is what those guys were doing uh, back in the '90s and have since you know, kind of gotten the career maybe that they always, uh, you know, maybe, maybe could have had if they would have stayed together. So, uh, you know, th- those are just, I mean, three, three bands that, that, that came out of Austin in the nineties, but it just took a while for them to come out of Austin. Um, but you know, to, to, to your point, I mean, it was at the time, uh, if you would have been there, uh, and you were there, uh, it was sort of this, uh, you know, situation where, uh, you know, this band looks like they're going to be the one to break and, uh, they, they've gotten signed to a label and good. Now they're going out on tour. Good. And, uh, you know, maybe they have a song in a, in a movie or something. Maybe they, just, they have a song that gets picked up by college radio. Uh, but, but something, uh, would always kind of maybe knock them, uh, off the game a little bit, or they just couldn't quite make that jump. Um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about maybe why that, why that is. I know when we talk to people, uh, in the book, um, you know, Brant Bingaman from the band pocket fishermen who are definitely a band, uh, that would do really well in Austin, uh, during the 1990s and they continue to play out, uh, even now. Um, 
you know, once they left Austin, uh, they just, they did not translate outside of Austin for, for whatever reason. I know, I know Brant would talk about, you know, maybe it's just the fact that we're, uh, we're, you know, we're goofy and we're doing, you know, our lyrics are kind of perverted and, uh, you know, we're being funny and maybe funny doesn't make sense uh, in other, other markets, but, uh, yeah. but that was, Let me jump in yeah, that was definitely quick. the case of, I, I just want to jump in quickly because uh, I kind of um, want to play the cherubs. I want to play a song from Heroin Man. Oh. This is a song called uh, Dave of the Moon about a guy named Dave DeLuna that was part of the scene who uh, died from a heroin overdose. So this is the cherubs, Dave of the Moon. David the Moon from the Cherubs undersung Heroin Man album on Trance Syndicate. So, yeah, the um, I'm glad you brought up the Pocket Fisherman and that whole sort of um, I would I would sort of classify the Pocket Fisherman with Squat Thrust and some other bands that there was a uh, definitely a connective tissue to the sort of butthole surfers or an echo of the butthole surfer scratch acid scene that Pat. Blashell talked about in this Texas in the Reason book, and and the cherubs are definitely uh, part of that, but without the funny, they were much more. They could have easily fit on amphetamine reptile or even sub pop, maybe. They were very much sort of a noise rock or even grunge band of that period. But but um, there was definitely a comedy aspect. But I think one thing about the scene that I, I'd like to say, though, from my experience of it, it wasn't. I mean, there was definitely an aspect, like if you read the Austin Chronicle, there would be sort of a certain excitement about oh, this band or that band is going to make it or, you know, there's this or that record, you know, with Southwest Southwest, there were record companies in town every year. But mostly it was just every weekend there was a whole fuck ton of bands playing really cool music and having a lot of fun. And I honestly don't know of another city that was swarming the way Austin was, even if it never coalesced into anything um, that rocked the nation or, you know, dramatically uh, socially coalesced. But I want to bring up another band that I think did kind of represent something unique. And that was the fuck emos or fuck emos. Like, tell us about them, <laughs> their name and just, kind of the way they epitomize the ethos of that period well i mean i, th I think the fuckimos are probably one of the most unlikely success stories to emerge from austin music or really music anywhere because uh you know those guys started as a band called uh called warthog and um if you would have seen them when they were just getting started at the cavity it was just uh, you know, a squall of, of noise. And, um, you know, the, the, the singer, Russell Porter, uh, who also doubled on trombone would sing through this, uh, this pitch shifter, uh, that, that I believe he, he bought it like toy joy. I mean, so it wasn't like a professional piece of equipment. It was 
something that they would somehow manage to patch into the uh, the PA, and it would make his voice go very low and evil, uh, you know, kind of like a uh, you know like a, a someone who's possessed in a horror movie or something. And he would he would sing with this voice, and um, the, the the origin of the name Fakimos came about uh, because I guess at, at one point his I think his wife was in. Uh, it was in Emo's and I think he wanted to go in and get her, but it was after closing time and they, uh, they wouldn't let him come in. And, uh, so I think they put Fakimo's on, on their, uh, on their drum head one day and just basically, and then decided that was the name. And, uh, Dave Herman, who was, uh, the, uh, one of the owners of the cavity and who was kind of serving as their manager was, you know, and it was like, are you sure you want to do that? Which is a, a, a rare show of restraint from someone like uh, someone like Dave, rest in peace. Uh, and they said, no, we, we're the fuck emos now. And, um, and, and so that, that became that. And then they, they made a tape uh, of, of these songs that they had. Uh, and I think they went out and bought a whole bunch of uh, just cheap tapes from a, a dime store or something like that, and just duped them off and gave them away for uh, free and and suddenly, I think everybody realized that Russell was actually a really great songwriter. And there was this, uh, even though the songs were sort of evil and, and grungy and dark, there was also sort of this underlying pop ethos in them. Um, the, the, the just, and the, the two things uh, worked together in, in just a magnificent way that you would have never, uh, you, you would have never expected and so, yeah, and the irony, of course, is that from the time that uh, that, that tape came out, it, it wound up on the uh, jukebox at Emo's and everybody at Emo's thought it was hilarious. And they became the fuck Emo's became one of the most popular bands uh, of the era that, that played uh, that played Emo's. They certainly did. And I was um, pausing just for a second because I want to make sure that the song that I want to play uh, is available um, on YouTube. And it is. And and so let's go ahead and hear the fuck emos. And this this is, gets to right to their pop heart. This is Do You Want to Dance? And that was the fuck emos. Do you want to dance? Which, yeah, I think sums up everything wonderful and terrifying about that band. And um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I remember the first time I saw them walking into a club and and I didn't know what Rohypnol was. And then I swear, (laughs) you know, within 15 minutes, I had a thorough education about the all the uses of Rohypnol, you, you could just see sort of a case study. And this was before it was infamous as the date rape drug. It was strictly a pharmaceutical being misused as uh, recreational. And it, it, it really was. I mean, it was, I mean, I think the first time I ever heard of it being used as a, as a date rape drug was, was like years after 
it had kind of become a relatively popular drug within Austin simply because of uh, the city's proximity to Mexico. People could go down there and buy it and bring it back and, and sell it. And and it was much in demand, and, and it, you know, it really, really wrecked people. But you talked a little bit about the clubs, and you kind of structured the book around the clubs in the scene. And the cavity, tell us a little bit more about the cavity, because it's a pretty unique story, and it really did launch this scene or incubate this scene. What was the cavity? How was How can a club be a squat? You know, and... and, and <laughs> well- well, I think I think in, th- in this case, uh, the, the club was a a squat um, because uh, the the people who own and ran the club uh, lived there, um, e- even though it was uh, I don't think it was zoned for residency. It's, it certainly wasn't fit for any kind of uh, decent uh, residency, but. Um, it wasn't fit to you know, be a club. I mean, it, 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 it didn't even have a ceiling in part of it. It was just a space between two buildings, really. Basically, that's what it was. I mean, what it had been before the cavity moved in, uh, immediately before the cavity moved in, there was a, uh, a very strange uh, quasi-religious uh, environmental group that sort of had some cult-like tendencies called, uh, called, called Zendix. The Zendix uh, had their, uh, I guess it would have been kind of like their squad living there. And, and that they were led by uh, a really kind of freaky looking old guy named Wolf Zendik, who would go on public access television and, you know, scream about, you motherfuckers are destroying the planet. And, you know, just just crazy stream of consciousness stuff. And it was always just, you know, just, yeah, very very weird scene and uh and then the cavity took it over and i think in some ways it got even weirder after that uh it was it was run uh i think jimmy bradshaw from the band uh, squat thrust uh i think helped put up some of the money to get get the club off the ground and then uh starring wagner uh was uh of, of all the people i think in that in that mix you know sort of uh as close to a a you know, stoic voice of reason as you were probably likely to find. And then, you know, Dave Herman, I think was the, uh, the, the guy with the, the PA and he was the guy who, um, uh, he was kind of the face of the cavity and he was a, a, a very, um, he looked a lot like Frank Zappa. He was kind of a very strange looking dude and, and a guy who was, uh, you know, just always up for, uh, whatever sort of mayhem and trouble uh, that that he could kind of get get himself uh, into, and so there was just you know there was a groundswell of bands, newer bands that were happening at the time. Uh, the, those bands didn't really have a whole lot of places to play. There was uh, the Cannibal Club, uh, which was a which was a great club uh, for its time, but that was just one club, so it was very difficult for all of these bands to actually get on a, on a proper stage. And so, you know, bands would find themselves playing house parties and uh, uh, co-op parties near university of Texas over in West campus and that sort of thing. And then very rarely, uh, you know, they would, they find themselves uh, getting a proper club gig. And then when the cavity opened, suddenly, you know, these same bands that would have had trouble getting a gig at a place like cannibal, simply because they just had such a wealth of bands to choose from, 
uh, would find themselves, you know, headlining a three or four band bill uh, at the cavity. And the cavity was, uh, it was a BYOB club. So they, they did not get hassled by the state alcoholic beverage commission. Uh, one of the most amazing things about the cavity, I think, is that, um, you know, if you, if, if a 12 year old kid wanted to go there, uh, a 12 year old kid could, could go there and they would have, you know, they had, they had, you know, Gigi Allen play one of his most, uh, infamous, uh, shows ever at the cavity where, uh, you know, he did, he did his normal poo flinging and all that stuff. But then, um, someone, uh, set off tear gas and the police showed up and, um, it was, you know, just a, a full on melee. And, uh, yeah, you could have, you know, if you were an unknowing parent, you could have dropped off your 12 year old <laughs> at the club. And, and, uh, you know, would have been quite an education, you know, my, my, you know, in, in that case might've been better off just, you know, going, to, going over to Antone's and seeing a, you know, a blues band or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, might've been yeah. less frightening unless they sold you some heroin. Um, the, there was, you know, dropping the, the, mentioning that you know dropping off a kid though makes me think of the terrible incident where somebody was picked up at the cavity and then abducted and murdered and the police suddenly were very interested and do, do you know the story i'm going to where the the fucking mouse yeah. had a song yeah tell us tell us about that how the fucking mouse found themselves under investigation after the police watched a video of their performance well there um one of the you know big tragedies in, in Austin uh, it, it, at that time uh, that I believe took place toward the end of 1991 uh, was what is locally referred to as the uh, yogurt shop murders. And basically what happened is that so, uh, someone or a group of people uh, came into a, uh, I can't believe it's yogurt store in North Austin that was uh, being closed up by uh, a bunch of high school age girls. And uh, basically murdered them and set the store on fire. And to this day, I mean, they've never actually, uh, you know, the, the, the case is still open. Um, and, and this, so this was a, a huge crime, uh, in, in Austin at the time, because Austin was really thought of as a, as a very safe city. Uh, it, it, so it was a very rare thing to have happen. It got national, uh, national media attention. It was it really, it was the most notorious crime I think to, ha to happen in Austin since the UT tower shooting and the, the police, um, you know, I think got caught on their heels in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, they were under a lot of pressure, uh, to make headway in the case, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of forensic evidence to go on. And so one of the things among many different leads that they followed was uh, that they, they called them PIBs at the time. It was people in black. Uh, and they were uh, convinced uh, that, that perhaps uh, some, you know, some people who were involved uh, in the local underground music scene uh, may have had, you know, had some sort of they, they, they were people of interest to the police. Let's just put it that way. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, and th there was a, there was a band that played the cavity pretty often called vampire bondage club. I know that, uh, they, they found themselves under a bit of scrutiny. Um, there was a, a, actually one, one person, um, 
and I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but I remember uh, like 48 Hours did a, uh, which was the CBS News Magazine, uh, showed the police raiding the house of a woman who uh, had like a skull or something. And of course the skull turned out to be plastic. This was just like a, uh, you know, a woman who happened to be kind of like a, uh, you know, a, a death rocker or a goth as we might call them today. Uh, and, and so this, this is what was going on in Austin. There was a lot of paranoia and I, and I think, uh, yeah, the, the, the fuck emos being the fuck emos decided, uh, they would, you know, they, they would write a song about, uh, you know, where, where they make reference to the, uh, I know uh, who did it. murders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Called, I know exactly. who did it. And then the police. Yeah, took I know who, yeah exactly. So police took I, him literally. I think that's what it. Yeah, it was, and it wasn't so much because uh, you know people were, uh, you know, I think being irreverent toward the, the real tragedy that happened. It, I think it was more a commentary on, uh, you know, on, on the fact that there was this uh, bungled police response followed by this uh, massive media explosion, and uh, and and so yeah, it 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 was the kind of thing that it, given the timber of the time, people were gonna. Uh, do you know exercise some irreverence about I guess for sure and let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors when we come back we'll talk about more irreverent things that happened in Austin in the 90s hello Pantheon podcast listeners Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And so um, I want to talk about two clubs that kind of inherited the mantle of the cavity because the cavity didn't last much longer than the, the Gigi Allen show. It, it drew too much attention and, and it just wasn't an idea of long for this world. I think it was essentially a crack house. <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> and like, uh, you know, functioning as a, as a, as a youth club, which, um, you know, but one of the clubs that sprung that came up, while the cavity was still going and kind of helped lead to the demise was a very commercial proposition. And the other one was the antithesis of that. And I'm talking about emos and the blue flamingo. Tell us about those two clubs, how they were different and how they were yet still similar enough that there was kind of a pipeline of bands from the blue flamingo to emos. Well, uh, well, emos, uh, got its start as, as a club in, in Houston. Um, the, the, the first emo started there, I think in the, either the very late eighties or the very early nineties. Uh, and was started by a, a, a gentleman named, uh, Eric Hartman, whose nickname was emos. And, uh, and, and I think people kept telling him, uh, when they would come through Houston that you really need to, uh, open a place in Austin. And so, uh, the, the place that, uh, uh, Eric and, and company settled on was a club that was right at the corner of, uh, of six and red river, um, which was a, turned out to be a very strategic location, I think, because as the nineties progressed, uh, original live music, you really stopped seeing as much of that, I think on sixth street. And it really, uh, started kind of creeping more up red river to the point where like today, uh, Red River. If you drive down there, they have street signs that let you know that you're in the you're in the Red River Cultural District. And uh, there were there were clubs there, uh, you know, obviously before emos, uh, you know, the Cavity and Chances just being two of them, and even going back to uh, uh, the set, you know, the the 70s and the 60s. Uh, you know, the 60s, you had the New Orleans Club down there, which is where Rocky uh, Erickson and the 13 Floor Elevators played, and then uh, the one night. Uh, is where, uh, you know, Steve Ray Vaughn got his start. So, uh, you know, there always been stuff down there, but, it, but I, I think Emo's was kind of the, uh, was kind of the fortress, if, if you will. And once Emo's opened, you know, they, they had uh, two stages, one indoor, one outdoor, so they could present uh, smaller, uh, smaller shows. Um, and, and, and then the outdoor stage probably had a, a seating, uh, not seating, but a stand, standing, uh, probably in the neighborhood of three or 400 people. Uh, and, uh, so you kind of had a, a small stage and a big stage, so they could, uh, operate on any given night. And if the small stage wasn't in use, people could, uh, come in and drink. And then they had a nice patio where people could, uh, uh, could, could carouse and, uh, you know, get together or break up or what have you. Um, and, and it was free to get in. Uh, which was, which was huge. Um, so uh, they made all of their money, uh, all, at least early on uh, off of the bar. Um, and even with that, I mean, they could afford to bring in bands like Killdozer and No Means No and uh, John Spencer Blues Explosion and uh, Jesus Lizard. Um, 
so they bring in all these national acts that if you were in San Francisco or New York, you'd be paying upwards of, you know, 20 bucks to go see them. And in Austin, you could see them for free. And, uh, and, and then a lot of these local bands, uh, that had been, that been previously playing the cavity, uh, would get to open those shows because there weren't, uh, you know, bands weren't really going out on package tours as much. So it, it, very often uh, the local bands would get the opportunity to open and, and they would get that exposure. So, uh, you know, I think Emo's was a, uh, in some ways they, they took a lot of that energy that, that the cavity helped uh, harness, uh, but, you know, handled it in a more proper uh, professional way that, that uh, had a level of sustainability to it that, uh, yeah, you kind of you kind of knew the cavity uh, at any given moment could could go down because it was it, it really wasn't a uh, it really wasn't a business in the truest sense of the word. <laughs> no, put it that way. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and then and, yeah. And, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to just comment that Emos was a music business juggernaut. This is where Johnny Cash played uh, when his Rick Rubin produced album debuted in 1994 and just the sort of institution. And I think as much as any single club probably built modern Austin or built the reputation of Austin as this world-class entertainment headquarters that, um, you know, Antones and and other clubs are, are pretty legendary, but none of them ever quite had the vibe of of emos on a big south by southwest night the way that you had the two stages the indoor outdoor the doors on two corners and also i want to mention the amazing artwork um you know the late oh, frank yeah. kozik uh, had a new number of pieces uh um and i'm blanking on the names of uh, lindsey coon had had Lindsay a, Coon, yep yeah an amazing uh I, it wasn't a mural, just a, a painting, a, a Texas serial killer uh, homage, uh, giant painting, um, you know, that filled up a whole wall. And, and it, it really crystallized sort of the early 90s grunge uh, aesthetic in a very deceptively commercially successful way. It, at the time, the tattoos and, and everything read as dangerous and everything, but they had packaged it just at the perfect time. And let's go ahead and hear our next song before we go back to the conversation. And this is Sincola's Bitch off the What the Nothing Had Said album. was Rebecca Cannon of Sincola singing Bitch off their What the Nothing Had Said album. And, you know, Rebecca and Sincola were kind of the flagship of the scene for a long time. I mean, they were, seemed like always on the cover of the Chronicle or always playing a big show. And um, we haven't talked about the role of women in the scene and particularly lesbian women. In the 80s, Austin was famous because, or not famous, but known for an unusually active gay presence in the punk scene. I mean, the, the lead singers of the big boys, the Dicks, MDC were were openly gay, out and proud in a 
period of time when people like Michael Stipe or Bob Mould were very much closeted and, you know, Austin was loud and proud with it. And in the nineties, it seemed like the lesbian scene came into its own and, and not just lesbians, but also lots of women were active in the scene in a way that we hadn't seen in the eighties. And we're seen in very few scenes other than I'd say Olympia Washington, um, in the nineties, talk about Sincola and, and kind of, it wasn't ever articulated as girl power or riot girl or any of that kind of stuff, but talk about the femme presence in, in Austin punk in this period. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that was really, um, and, and putting together the book with my co-author, uh, Richard Weimark. I mean, uh, the, the women, uh, we spoke to, I think really, um, filled in a lot of, um, I wouldn't necessarily call them blanks uh, in terms of our understanding of how things worked, but hearing their, their, their perspective, like, like, for example, we, we've talked a lot about the cavity, um, you know, talking with, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, the men from the scene, uh, they, they would, you know, they would say things like, you know, the cavity was the spark, you know, that was, that was a really big deal. And then, you know, we talked to the women and they're like, Eh, I don't know about that. It was kind of a shithole and it was kind of a scary place to go for, for a woman. Um, now, now, fortunately, I think one of the things that, that we had not far from the cavity, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier was, uh, was chances and chances was a, uh, ostensibly a lesbian bar that, uh, was, um, just up the road from the cavity, maybe a block and a half away, uh, that had been opened by a woman named, uh, Sandra Martinez, and uh, Sandra's, I think, you know, re- reading her accounts of it, unfortunately, we weren't able to, to talk with her for the, for the book, but we, you know, just reading her contemporary accounts about, you know, how chances came to be, uh, she really wanted to open up, uh, she wanted to have an open lesbian bar that wasn't, um, that wasn't behind, uh, behind shaded windows, uh, they, they wanted, the, she was very much about, uh, about being out, uh, in terms of her, her business model and live music was, uh, was very much a part of it. And because there was live music there, there was, uh, the, uh, you know, there was the opportunity for, uh, you know, straight heterosexual guys who might otherwise be like, you know, immersed in a very bro type culture uh, to come in and, uh, just see, you know, see these, these women who were, uh, doing bands, uh, you know, I, th- I think, um, you know, if we're talking about the eighties into the nineties, I mean, everything Gretchen Phillips was doing back then with two nice girls and later on solo, I think was, was, uh, uh, super inspiring. Another band that emerged at that time that really, uh, broke up, I think that, you know, before they could really get their due, uh, was a band called Power Snatch. Um, Cindy Widener, who uh, was was the singer of Power Snatch, we talked to her, and one of the things she said is that, you know, we really didn't need Riot Girl in Austin because we had Power Snatch. Um, and I and I think it, it's it's hard to delineate the difference between uh, you know what was coming out of Olympia at the time and what was coming out of Austin. But I th- I think if 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 I if I was going to do it, I would probably say that, um, you know, it, it was the, the women who were doing bands like Power Snatch were slightly older. Uh, 
uh, probably weren't as strident politically uh, is, is uh, you know, say a band like Bikini Kill was, but were every bit as, you know, just totally full on um, rocking in a, in a, in a unique way that just, I, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see that, that same sort of approach to it uh, from a, a group of uh, a group of dudes who'd spent too much time listening to like, you know, Eddie Van Halen and fog out or something like that. So, uh, so, you know, they, they, it wasn't like that women were at the periphery of the scene. Women were right at the very heart of the scene. And like you said, I mean, you know, earlier, I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Randy Biscuit Turner from the big boys and Gary Floyd from the dicks, you know, out and proud gay men leading, uh, uh you know, leading two of the big punk rock bands in ta- in Austin in the eighties. Uh, you know, if you go back to the very kind of beginnings of what we would come to know as punk rock in Austin, you know, I think arguably the, the first, uh, you know, the, the first band that really kind of presented itself as a, as a punk band would have been, uh, you know, the violators. And that, that was, uh, you know, Kathy Valentine from the go-go's when she was like all of about 17 years old. So there's always been a, uh, you know, I, I think Austin's had a, a pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good run of having women be integral to the scene. But I think in the nineties, it just, it, it, it really, uh, it, it, it really kind of came together in a, in a big way. And then, so you had, you know, slightly, you know, bands like power snatch, uh, who were, um, you know, a group of slightly, uh, you know, older, uh, you know, older folks who are leading bands, not, I don't want to say old, but you know, they were older than the people who were like, 21, 22 years old, the ones who are just coming up and the, the ones who are young and just coming up would have been people like Rebecca Cannon from Sincola and, uh, you know, Carrie Clark from, uh, 16 Deluxe, um, you know, Michelle rule from Miss universe, uh, Melissa Bryan from the shindigs. Uh, there were, uh, uh there, there were, you know, quite a, quite a few of them, uh, at the time. And, um, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want to speak for, uh, you know, for, for women, um, in general, but just, you know, again, talking from, uh, you know, the women we, we interviewed for the book, um, they, you know, the ones who would go out on tour would talk about how, uh, you know, Austin, uh, was just a more, uh, you know, just a better atmosphere for women in music. Uh, you know, Carrie, Carrie, uh, Clark talks about how, uh, you know, she would go, she would go out and, uh, the sound guy would either assume that she was, uh, you know, a girlfriend or someone selling merch or the singer, or if she was fortunate enough to be considered a musician, the, the guy would show up with a DI box because the assumption was that she was a bassist. Yeah. Uh, there, yep. <laughs> there were dreaded, a lot of stories like that. And yeah. So yeah. So just based on their stories, uh, you know, it, it you know, there, there was, it was a, it was, uh, you know, we, we, we definitely had a, a really good crop of, of, uh, of, of bands that, um, either were, uh, entirely made, a, made up of women or who had women in, in very, uh, uh, prominent roles. And, and they, yeah, they were is integral to the scene, I think as the, as the men were. And I think uh, speaking, is a is a man who was involved in this whole scene i just i feel like you know ha- having those you know having those women there doing what they were doing uh 
it, it just made the, it made the scene a much more, uh, interesting, vibrant, uh, fruitful, uh, and more artistically, uh, varied, uh, scene than it would have been, than it would have been if it just would have been a bunch of dudes. Yeah, for sure. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of 16 Deluxe. This is 16 Deluxe doing Idea. That was 16 Deluxe doing Idea off their first album for Trans Syndicate. And let's talk a little bit about Trans Syndicate because this is a, a record label founded and run by King Coffey, uh, the drummer for the Butthole Surfers. And Trance was as close to a uh, sub pop of the scene as you could get. Tell us about kind of the, the different phases and, and, and what King managed to do with the Trans Syndicate. Well, I, I think, you know, the moment King started Trance uh, is, is where we kind of pegged the beginning of our book. Um, and, you know, basically the, the origin story of that was, you know, King had a little time off the road uh, with, with the buttholes and had, uh, you know, I think always kind of smarted at the fact that, um whenever they were dealing with, uh, you know, independent labels, they were always dealing with somebody, you know, in New York or California and being in Texas, uh, you know, in the, this before the internet, uh, when long distance phone calls still cost a fair amount of money, uh, it was, it was difficult to, uh, maintain any kind of contact and develop any sort of relationship. Um, so he, he, uh, on, on, on January, First, 1990, made a New Year's resolution that he was going to start a, a a record label that was going to put out Texas bands. Um, you know, I think one of the bands he immediately had his eye on was uh, was Ed Hall. Ed Hall had put out a couple of records uh, up to that point on uh, on Boner Records, which was a label out of California. Uh, he was able to kind of corral Ed Hall and give them a uh, you know, a, a local connection with a label. Uh, another, you know, I think actually the first band on trance uh, was a band called Crust that, uh, you know, if you ever got a chance to see Crust, it was, uh, you know, quite or quite quite a bit like the Butthole Surfers, only in some ways maybe even a little bit more uh, extreme. Um, if the lead singer you know, was think, a televangelist, then then that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he would he would do a, a kind of a yeah, he would he would present himself as a televangelist. But, you know, as the show went on, it would just get grosser and grosser and they would be playing these instruments that they built out of uh, out of junk. And it was uh, loud and cacophonous. And then uh, by the end of the night, he might be wearing like nothing but duct tape underwear and might be like, you know, trying to set his pubic hair on fire with a lighter or pulling worms out of his pants i mean there there was all sorts of uh just really strange stuff that happened when uh uh when when crust was around so you know ed hall and crust were were those 
were the two bands uh, and those bands had already been around for a little while when the night he started, but those were the two of the first bands that uh, King put out. And then uh, as things move forward, we talked a little bit about the Cherubs. Uh, John Boy was another band that, uh, that, that was a bit younger, newer of a band uh, that, that King put out. Unfortunately, those guys didn't, you know, they put out a, a really good record, claim dedications, and then, promptly broke up and never really got a chance to, uh, you know, enjoy the fruits of that. But, and then right about the midpoint of trances, uh, arc was when 16 deluxe happened. And, uh, you know, suddenly King had like an honest to goodness buzz band on his hands that, you know, multiple, uh, major labels were, uh, kind of clamoring after. And, uh, you know, the, the, to hear 16 deluxe talk about it, I mean, these guys were, very, very new, really had not had a chance to even really be a, a local band for, uh, for that long. And suddenly, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about these, you know, major label record contracts and everything. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think that, that all happened really, uh, really fast for, for those guys. And, um, they, they did get to Warner brothers and put out an album on Warner brothers and, it, you know, commercially didn't really do, I think what, anybody really wanted it to do. And so, uh, you know, they, they got, they, they got out of that, uh, they got out of that, that particular label deal. Um, but that was probably the biggest flirtation I would say that trance had with the mainstream. Um, and then in the latter half of the nineties, I think, uh, you know, King and, and, uh, his, uh, spouse, Craig Stewart, who uh, was also, uh, you know, really, I think, integral to the, the running of the label and, and finding these really great bands. I think they, they started looking at a lot of bands that were uh, not necessarily kind of loud and in your face as much. So that was kind of how a band like Bedhead from Dallas came along and wound up on uh, wound up on Trance. And uh, Windsor for the Derby uh, kind of had a little bit of a, a lighter uh, electronic oriented sound i think was another band uh american, american analogs that was a yeah i'm glad you mentioned them I wanted, yeah i wanted to mention them i'm glad you brought up craig too he he, he was definitely uh integral to it and and um you know I, the, 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 thinking of of craig and and so many of the people that have passed or are still fighting horrible illnesses from the scene it's a sort of the downside of being in your 50s um especially for a hard living scene like this like so many of the people that were talked about in the book didn't live to tell their story in the book and and that's kind of a a morbid side term but um you know that's the nature of reality and we didn't get uh to the blue flamingo particularly but that was a legendary drag bar that was where the, the the term a curious mix of people um came from and it was right next door to the cavity and that's where a lot of the bands uh played and so it was the the spirit of the cavity kind of migrated north and south between blue flamingo and and emos and the commercial side of it manifested at emos and this underground unbelievably underground aspect of it uh, uh uh you know thrived at the blue flamingo which is about the size of my living room and and had no stage and and you know it was a very raw uh, club uh you know laura miss laura used to joke that you know that the cliches that gay men were wealthier handsomer better dressed 
uh, and had higher incomes than than the average hetero. And Blue Flamingo is where the other gay men went. <laughs> yes, so. that's pretty much it. Yeah, it was uh, Blue Flamingo. Yeah, uh, you know, and and uh, unfortunately, I mean, that was you know. I, I think we learned uh, very recently, like, you know, within the last couple of weeks that, uh, you know, Miss Laura actually passed away uh, a, a couple of years ago. She kind of I know Richard had been kind of uh, following her. She'd been in, in uh, bad health for a while. Uh, and um, but but she yeah, she she finally did uh, just succumb to a, a, you know, a whole raft of uh, of health issues that I think, you know, frankly, actually, I think started when you know, when, when the Blue Flamingo was still, uh, open, but, uh, the, the place, uh, that, that she provided, uh, was just the, the right place at the, at the right time. And it was a, uh, you know, I think she had, she'd seen that, okay, well, there are people coming to the cavity, uh, this, you know, and, and the cavity was kind of going under and she thought that, uh, you know, it might make sense to start having bands in there, but it, it did become like a full on, uh, scene in and of itself. And uh, I think, you know, the bands, uh, you know, uh, the, the Motards, I think were, uh, definitely, if, if you had to pick a house band for the, for the Blue Flamingo, uh, they would definitely be it. And, you know, other garage bands like, uh, uh, um, the reclusives and the chumps, uh, uh and, and a whole, a whole ton of others, uh, as well as some of the bands that, you know, uh, you know, the fuck emos, uh, Stratford, uh, that you'd, you'd find those guys there a lot too. And, 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 you know, we, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention, uh, your, your band, Nate, the nipple five who were, <laughs> who put <laughs> on, you. had some, had some wild nights at the blue flamingo. That we did full on, uh, barroom brawls with gunplay. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I've heard that story. <laughs> well, uh, I don't think I've heard the gunplay for the book. It was it was ah. something else. Somebody I'd never seen before. Uh, a fight broke out between um, the San Antonio band that was closing the show, and oh, I feel really bad. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. And um, and one of the patrons at the club that turned into a complete barroom brawl which i'd never seen happen before in my life and somebody i'd never seen before ran into the club and yells get the gun and pulls jumps over the bar and pulls a 32 out from the cash register (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was it was quite a night but so yeah the the blue blue flamingo anything could happen and 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 greg you've you've told us some of the stories uh in the book but many many more great stories in the book the book is a curious mix of people the underground scene of 90s austin as excellently chronicled by greg beats and richard weimark greg thanks so much for coming on the show and more importantly thanks for chronicling the scene oh well thanks so much for having me nate it's been a pleasure Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, we'll continue to let Motown roll with a recast of Nate and Brooks Long's discussion of Dave Ritz's co-written autobiography of the great Smokey Robinson. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 